Welcome to Calling All Stations with me, Christian Walmar, the podcast that gives you news and views on all aspects of transport. And with me, as usual, is Mark Walker of Cogitamus, who is keeping us abreast of the transport news. And I understand you've just taken a train, Mark. Yes, hello, Christian. I, I travelled by train this morning on LNER from Peterborough, and I was interested to find that uh, LNER seemed to have abolished peak time restrictions on Fridays, reflecting the very different ways that people travel nowadays. And uh, so I was able to uh, come in at quarter to eight in the morning for a very modest fare indeed into London. That's interesting. I do wonder if uh, other transport companies and rail companies in particular are going to follow uh, that example because um, you know, we've already got this uh, £2 for travelling at any time on buses across uh, Britain, which I think is a superb idea. And maybe at last, transport companies will understand that if they reduce prices, they'll get more people using the trains and buses. You would think it's a fairly basic law of economics, wouldn't you? That uh, <laughs> make things cheaper, people will buy more. But, it's but one knows? that they haven't learnt yet. So, Mark, I think uh, there's been quite an important uh, development today with uh, this uh, publication of uh, this report into Net Zero. Yes, this is a very significant development, I think, across the economy, not just in transport, with the publication of a document called Mission Zero, which is the independent review of Net Zero, conducted by the Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, MP, um, initially commissioned by the uh, briefly in office Liz Truss government to look at the impact of net zero uh, objectives on economic growth. But I know you've been looking at this as well, uh, Christian, this morning, and I think it's uh, come up with what we might consider some quite surprising conclusions. Well, indeed, uh, I think this is a pretty radical document given that it comes from uh, a Tory MP and was commissioned by uh, the uh, not very lamented uh, Liz Trust. Um, but and it's full of kind of the sort of stuff that one might actually expect from a sort of Labour uh, policy paper. For example, uh, it says, um, and this is a very lengthy report, and this is on page 230, um, the review has heard repeatedly that the expense of public transport is a deterrent to people. And uh, it has a little graph showing that since 2010, now what happened in 2010, Mark? I think a certain government was elected, but anyway, since 2010, uh, the price of uh, buses has gone up 80%. The price of rail fares has gone up 47%, but the price of running your car has only gone up 27%. And this is between 2010 and 20. Uh, 21. Now, you know, this is standard stuff with uh, those of us who follow transport. We, we know that the terms of trade between bus use and, uh, and trade use and car use have uh, always uh, favoured car use. And that's uh, hardly surprising, given that we've had endless kind of uh, times when they threatened to kind of increase fuel duty. And then at the last moment, they say, no, 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 hey, it's your good bit of news in the budget. We're not going to uh, reduce the. We're not going to increase the fuel duty this time. So, 
um, so this hardly uh, is surprising, but it is surprising to see it in a document produced by a uh, Tory uh, MP for a Tory government. Though I think we ought to, in the interests of political balance, reflect on the fact that under the previous Labour government, rail fares notably did go up by retail price index plus one, if I remember rightly, uh, uh, Christian. Uh, yes, uh, yes. So, so this, is, this uh, tendency towards increasing fares is, is not confined solely to the Conservatives. I think it's fair uh, to point no, out. That, that's fair enough. And, and uh, at least this time, if they're going up by 5.9%, which is probably in March, which they've delayed a bit, it would normally be this week they went up, but uh, that is less than inflation. But nevertheless... Uh, it's still kind of quite a, an, an added burden. And what's interesting as well is that this uh, uh, Mr. Skidmore's report um, even cites uh, various European examples, which a bit shocking from a, a government that is so in favour of Brexit, isn't it, to actually kind of use examples from uh, across the water. But it mentions the, the German Deutschland ticket. Now, um, people might remember that uh, in order to recover from uh, COVID, uh, Germany introduced this uh, ticket of uh, nine uh, euros to use basically the train anywhere in your region. And now they've entrenched that in their system with uh, a ticket that is just uh, under 50 pounds per month um, to, to use trains, as many trains as you want uh, in, in your local region. And, and it's that sort of initiative that we are, are desperate for. I know you have a suggestion about a £100 maximum fare, don't you? It's, it seems to me that there's some merit, at least, even from uh, my, my relatively uh, you know, modest uh, background as a, a user and consumer of public transport services. But having a maximum fare uh, would be a, a way of signalling to rail users uh, that uh, there's an objective of making travel more affordable and doing it without the kind of expensive wholesale restructuring of the fares and ticketing system that we've been promised for the last almost two years now and, and with which no real progress seems to have been made. No, I think that's a, a terrific idea because uh, it allows you to market the railways. So just imagine, I mean, you know, in the old days under BR and indeed under its predecessors, the big four, there were fantastic marketing campaigns about getting people to use the railway, something that virtually doesn't happen anymore. So if you can advertise, you can get anywhere in the country for £100 or less uh, on the rail, any time, any day. I just think that would that would kind of revitalise the whole industry. People say, oh, oh, really? You know, that's really interesting. I've never thought of using the train, but I'm driving up to... Scotland, and that's going to cost me about 100 quid in petrol there and back. Why don't I jump on a train instead? It just would be inspirational. And you know what they found out with this £2 bus fare is that more people are using the buses. So we don't yet know yet because it's too early, but it may well be that actually they get more revenue in uh, despite the fares going down because more people are using them. Now that's all about elasticities and, and whatever. But the assumption would always be that, oh, we have to push the fares up to keep the, the revenue coming in. And this sort of thing kind of completely changes that. And so I think, you know, uh, Mr. Skidmore is, is, is on to a, a, a really good thing uh, by you know, suggesting that, uh, yes, 
the fares are, are a deterrent to people actually uh, using the railways. I mean, it's not revolutionary, but, you know, it's, it's a start. I think another feature of the Skidmore report that's very interesting is the emphasis on the uh, decarbonisation of transport, uh, all transport modes, indeed, to which he refers. As you say, it's a 300-page document and it's going to take a while fully to uh, analyse and, and digest. But he even talks about electrification of public transport in a very positive way. And uh, maybe, yet again, it's another dawn for electrification. Yes, I like also the fact that he doesn't portray electric cars as automatically being this total uh, solution. In fact, he, he warns against it somewhat by saying, well, uh, you know, there is a danger that if you encourage everybody into electric cars and you make it cheaper, or whatever, uh, they'll just transfer from uh, internal combustion engine cars to uh, electric cars, but they won't solve any of the, the co congestion uh, issues uh, that we know arise from uh, you know encouraging car use. So, uh, yeah, this is a this is a really intelligent report. Now, of course, we've seen good reports like this in the past, and uh, they've sunk without a trace. But the very fact that this comes from within the Conservative Party itself, I think, marks something of a of a shift. And you know, we have to watch this space carefully. But uh, all power to Mr. Skidmore's elbow. I mean, what is ironic, uh, Mark, is that. Of course, this started off by being commissioned by uh, Liz Truss as a way of showing that net zero was bad for business. And, uh, you know, uh, let's have a look at that and assess what the impact on business. And he comes out with precisely the opposite conclusion, which is saying that, you know, uh, we shouldn't think of uh, moving towards net zero as a cost. We should think it as an opportunity and that indeed, uh, moving towards net zero will create jobs, will create wealth, as well as improving the environment. This is radical stuff. So, Christian, this week for the first time, Calling All Stations has been out and about producing our first outside broadcast. Would you like to tell the listeners about this? Uh, yes, well, I did a, a cab ride with... Uh, uh, John Spiff of uh, GB Rail Freight um, and we uh, were in the cab of Class 66 for the train spotters amongst you, um, uh, diesel engine, uh, going from Weddingborough in Northamptonshire up to the middle of the Peak District where there's a, a series of, of quarries actually, um, which uh, and we were taking the empties back to these uh, limestone uh, quarries. And it gave me an opportunity to talk to uh, John Smith, who uh, really has masterminded the growth of uh, GB Rail Freight uh, since privatisation from being a, a very small kind of, uh, you know, one horse uh, uh, company to uh, a big uh, business. And uh, it was great to be with John uh, in the cab and talk to him. So apologies for the background noise, but uh, he certainly uh, provides us with a very interesting interview. So I'm in the cab of a Class 66 rail freight train and we're heading from Wellingborough where we got on with a bunch of uh, empty wagons heading for uh, the Peak District just beyond Buxton where the yard is and I'm with John Smith 
uh, the boss of uh, <laughs> Rail Freight, who, uh, sorry, I'm with John Smith, the boss of uh, Rail Freight. John, tell me what we're doing, where we're going, and what the state of the uh, tracks are here. So, uh, Christian, we're, um, we're currently heading up through Kettering Station. We're on the Downfast. Uh, so we're heading towards uh, Leicester. Uh, this service started at Bletchley, where there's a, a stone terminal uh, run by a company called Semex, who is our customer. Um, and they have a quarry, their main quarry is in the Peak District. There's a number of quarries in that area. There's uh, Semex run one, uh, Tarmac one run two, uh, and a company called Breed and Aggregates run a, a fourth up there. Um, so effectively, we are wholesalers. We wholesale their stone from the manufacturing quarries to places where construction is taking place and where they can distribute. So we'll take uh, on this train between two and two and a half thousand tonnes of stone, which is uh, limestone in the Peak District. Uh, we bring that down to Bletchley via the West Coast main line overnight. The train's unloaded from about three o'clock in the morning till eight. And now we're on the service that returns the empty and this basically cycles every 24 hours. So we'll uh, get off this at a place called Peak Forest, which is behind Buxton. Um, and uh, at that point, the train will go into the sidings where it'll be reloaded and then we go through the cycle again, uh, bringing the train back. So we're shifting two and a half thousand tonnes a day of limestone for construction work into the sort of Milton Keynes area, is uh, the easy way to describe it. Oh, that's uh, brilliant, John, and we just uh, went through Kettering Station and we're uh, going at lickety spit here, aren't we? I mean, this is uh, quite a fast service at this point. Yeah, she's um, timed at 60 miles an hour, this one, I think. Um, but we're on the fast line, so we're using capacity between passenger trains. Um, but despite you know all the discussions on capacity on the network, we, we move quite fast and we don't stop at railway stations. So actually the timings we keep are almost comparable to a 100 mile an hour passenger train if, uh, if you take out the station stops. And we're just coming up to a junction now where the slow lines branch off towards Corby, head through a place called Harringworth to Manton Junction, where it joins the Peterborough-Stamford line where it swings back round then to, uh, towards Leicester. And you're doing uh, one of these a day, so you've got a, 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 enough uh, aggregates to carry to manage to do one train per day every day, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we are, we are subject to demand. Obviously, construction has to be strong. Uh, the customer on occasions may need less volume if they're not selling uh, the other end. So for us, one of the interesting things is that um, we deal with different parts of the economy. It's not all about navel gazing over railways. It's about how the construction industry is operating or the steel industry or the power industry. So um, on occasions we have the capacity to do five a week, which is what the normal cycle is. But there may be occasions where the customer asks uh, for less. Um, equally though, out of Peak Forest, we do work for other customers up there. And the majority of the aggregates constructing HS2 uh, are taken from the Peak District down to the Birmingham area and at the moment we're doing eight trains a day of stone wow. down to uh, Birmingham, a place called Washwood Heath and Small Heath. Um, so we're really quite busy in the Peak District at the moment. So, uh, and of course, you know, this is a profitable business. You're part of a business that built up from nothing uh, at privatisation to what size are you now? 
Uh, there's different ways of measuring it, Christian, but we'll turn over this year about 340 million if you want to do it on a revenue base. When we started 20 years ago in our first year of operation, we earned about four million pounds. So the business has grown from 20 of us uh, in the early days. Now we employ 1,500 uh, countrywide. We also operate through the channel tunnel into France. Um, and we've got roughly 140 locomotives and two and a half thousand wagons. So uh, what would this have been before? I mean, is this new business you've created brought to the railways or have you just pinched it off other freight companies? Um, in fairness, we do compete. Uh, we compete with uh, uh, DB Cargo and Freightliner over existing work on the railway. Um, what that does though is um, it, it makes you productive because we make money uh, by the productivity of our people, our labour, our direct labour and the productivity of our assets, the locomotives and the wagons. So the competition element of what we do sharpens you up to be as efficient as possible. And some of that is quite clever stuff railway wise, it's about getting paths on the network it's particularly about rotating assets every 24 hours, so you're getting one loaded train uh, per day. Um, equally though, that competition um, encourages uh, the customers to put more on rail. So quite a lot of our growth uh, comes from increased volume from existing customers. If they feel the service is um, uh, efficient um, and serves their purpose, and for instance, we passed a yard at Wellingborough earlier on which was previously derelict land, um, we invested over 10 million in the facility uh, to turn it into a stone and aggregates uh, wholesaling facility. So whilst we're dealing with the same customers and competing with DB Cargo and Freightliner, that haulage is actually growth on the existing customers. And then you get into other sectors that we deal with such as intermodal, deep sea boxes, where it very much is in competition with rail, when we, uh, with road rather. When we started uh, back in 2000, uh, our first intermodal service that we operated, again on a 24-hour cycle, um, was out of Felixstowe. And back then there were 13 trains a day operating out of Felixstowe. There's now 38 trains a, a day operating out of Felixstowe, which is being driven by the Green Agenda, people wanting to put stuff on rail. Two of our customers are road hauliers, uh, delivered by the, co the competition between us but it's all new work to rail, so the market has been growing quite dramatically over the years. Clearly Covid recession has an impact on some of that, but uh, it's a mix in terms of both what we win from competition and what we're bringing new to the network. I know, I've travelled with you on that uh, line from Phoenixstowe to Ipswich. It has expanded, but you reckon that you could still get more trains on it if you had the train parts? Yeah, we need, I mean, Capital investment in the infrastructure we operate on. I always have a view that you know the government's job via network rail is to invest in the network, which obviously is cessated a bit at the moment. But then our job is to exploit that space. If, if two tracks are laid on the Felixstowe branch, that gives us the ability to run more trains. Uh, we will compete and start to do that. So, um, so yes, we 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 see capacity on the network. A bit helped by passenger services being reduced a little bit. Um, but 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 yes, we, we, we're certainly seeing growth. Well, I can see we're going uh, north of Kettering here. We can see the uh, pylons for electrification, but there's obviously no wires up. Well, what's happening here? Uh, well, this is a bit that Network Rail are doing at the moment to electrify. The reason it's on this bit of railway, because it will only at the moment, I think it's only authorised to market Harborough, 
Um, it's because the feed from the national grid joins, crosses the railway. I'm not sure whether we've passed it, I think we have. Uh, but the feed for the network um, crosses there. So arguably, the, you know, the next stage, if, um, if the government wants to invest in further electrification, this is the next obvious bit of railway to do, to go north of Market Harbour to Derby, Nottingham and Sheffield. And as you see now, we're now beyond where the construction work's gone. But, uh, but eventually, the wires will reach uh, Market Harbour Station, which we're just coming around the corner to. And would you be able to run freight trains uh, on, uh, with electric locos? Or would that still be impossible? No, we've uh, recently committed to procure bi-mode uh, locomotive, 30 of them, being built by a company called Stadler in Valencia in Spain. Uh, with technology moving on, uh, these things can work off the overhead line uh, and offer about, I'm old units, but 7,000 horsepower. Uh, but they now have um, a diesel engine in them which can create about 2,800 horsepower. So, there are a number of routes where you've got 10 miles, maybe 15 miles of unelectrified railway which this locomotive will haul freight trains over. And it's not just a donkey engine, it's not for, um, it's not just for shunting round yards, this thing will operate up to 50, 60 miles an hour on diesel. Well, thank you, John. That's a great uh, uh, summary of what's happening in the freight industry and uh, I hope the noise wasn't too great. Thank you very much, John. That sounds like it was a fantastic trip, Christian, but what are your key takeaways from this experience? Well, it's always interesting riding in the cab of uh, a train because you see a view of the railways that you don't normally uh, from just watching the window from a carriage. And it is really noticeable the extent to which the railway is a mess, and by which I mean you know, you're, you're riding through, uh, we were riding through kind of bits of the railway that aren't particularly known and, and bits of freight line and stuff, but also on kind of sections of uh, the Midland main line. But you see on the side of the railway, there's kind of broken electrical equipment. There's kind of rails, uh, old bits of rail littering the forefoot that nobody can be bothered to kind of take those rails away because it's too much hassle to cut them up and and remove them and it's not worthwhile. There's uh, weeds growing from all sorts of abandoned buildings and there's just a general air of, of decay. And I think this is a product of the change in the way that the railways are now maintained, of course. I mean, in the old days, you did have, you know, half a dozen guys who operated from a hut and kind of patrolled, you know, five or six miles of railway and, and, and knew ex everything about it. Of course, of course, we, you know, we can no longer have that, but we've gone too far in the other extreme, whereby you've just had yellow kind of equipment kind of buzzing up the railways, checking on the, the rails and so on. But nobody is actually paying attention to, you know, what it looks like, what the overall picture is, uh, whether there's kind of stuff that needs to be done and sorted out. You know, nobody's actually really looking after it. And I think that's all part of you know, what I've termed in my rail columns is the nobody gives a damn railway. I mean, it, it you know, it, it's really needs some TLC. And, and I think that's, it's not just kind of, you know, to make things tidier. I think that's important psychologically, actually, for people working in the railways. They need to be proud of their environment and they need to kind of feel, a, you know, a sense that, you know, this is an industry that is, you know, doing its bit for the environment and so on. And that feel just doesn't exist from when you kind of 
sit in the cab and, and, and look at 100 miles of railway. Christian, I stayed up late the other night eagerly anticipating the UK becoming a spacefaring nation uh, because uh, space transportation was there in front of our very eyes with the launch of the uh, rocket from Newquay um, via the Cosmic Girl uh, Virgin jumbo jet. And we kind of almost made it. So the, the rocket was launched, but unfortunately failed to make it into orbit. What was your take on all of this? Well, of course, it is a bit sad to see uh, some, an initiative like this uh, uh, fail. And, you know, I was very taken with the uh, project leader uh, who gave you know, excellent interviews uh, about it. I must say, though, uh, I could do without Richard Branson being involved. Uh, you know, I mean, he is a bit of a kind of serial failure in many respects. I mean, you know, yes, Virgin's done some successes, but, you know, remember things like Virgin Cola and other Virgin, uh, very, vir other Virgin kind of products that have uh, failed. And uh, this space launch stuff he's been obsessed with for the last, I think, nearly 20 years. Um, and uh, it's actually resulted in, you know, two different accidents um, that have killed people and it's uh, been delayed multiple times. And it's he's kind of hooked on this project of creating space tourism. And, you know, I think that's just a pointless exercise. I think it's very important that we do space exploration and that we do things like this, which are kind of launching useful satellites into into uh, uh, space. But, you know, we could do without space tourism, really. I mean, I think it, that's just, the, uh, you know, the plaything of rich people like Elon Musk and uh, Bezos and uh, and Richard Branson and is utterly pointless. So I hope from this he, he focuses on uh, actually getting these satellites in the air and not kind of uh, uh, going on about space tourism. Because, you know, every time one of these fails, you think, well, lucky this didn't have people aboard. And of course, that rocket was not designed to have people adored. And but, uh, you know, one does worry that, you know, if space tourism does uh, actually happen, it's going to result in uh, completely needless deaths. Here are Christian's thoughts from the departure lounge. Well, uh, you know, I kind of try to avoid uh, uh, rants and I try to avoid kind of uh, criticising anything to do with bicycles. But there is a real problem uh, where I live uh, in, in North London, but also in, in other places with uh, these dockless electric bikes, which uh, mostly come from Uber, um, which uh, litter the streets. And they always seem to be knocked over. They always seem to be lying on their sides. Lots of them are hijacked by, uh, so we say, young people who, who are technically adept and therefore ride them around like crazy. And these things are, are, are very fast. You, you, you kind of press on your pedals and you jump up to about 15 miles an hour uh, very quickly. And they are something of a menace as kind of the people using them are often not experienced uh, cyclists. So, uh, look, I'm all in favour of any scheme that gets people out of their cars and anything that encourages active travel. 
but these things do need to be better regulated. So that's my rant for the week. And uh, thank you to list for listening to Calling All Stations and uh, hope you come back for the next one. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you enjoyed our podcast, please give us a five-star rating with whichever podcast provider you use.